The Dealmakers, an Agora production podcast, is a unique platform to recognize top-performing real estate partners and discover more about how they make deals. This is your time to learn from the best. I'm your host, Asaf Raz. Here we go. Today, I'm super excited. We're at IMN in Dallas. I'm sitting with Joe Blackburn from Everest Holdings. Joe has a crazy history of real estate investing, and he has great knowledge that I think everybody's going to benefit from if Joe shares that. So yeah, Joe Blackburn, introduce yourself. Nice to be here, Asa. So I am a Wisconsin native. I went to school at the University of Wisconsin and then ended up being moved out to Phoenix, Arizona in the 80s by a Minneapolis-based real estate investment and management company. So I've been there for 35 years or so and have done business in California, Nevada, Arizona, Colorado, New Mexico. But sometimes it's prudent to stay close to home when it comes to being able to create value and manage well. And we tend to be value add as a foundation piece Mm -hmm. of the business. And we get involved in some other investment strategies, but generally speaking, we want to have our hands on it. Yes. Hands on is something I've been hearing a lot, which is a very interesting concept as to how people are trying to get closer to their business. What does that mean for you? How would a day in your life look like today? Well, so I tend to split my time into days that are focused on deal generation and capital relationships and days that are focused on management and administrative tasks, including meetings with my teams. Mm -hmm. And so we have several platforms that are active currently, and we've had different platforms in the past. And we organize teams around acquiring those and then managing those and selling them if it's appropriate. Mm -hmm. The way I think about every day is really about relationships. It's people. You know, I think there is a lot of technology that's intersecting with our business now that streamlines relationship making, but not necessarily deepening. And so much of what I've been able to do over the years comes from knowing people better than, you know, just casually. Mm -hmm. Yeah. So you're like deep diving into the people themselves and kind of more of how they think. Does that make sense? Is that more or less? What they want. I learned over time, you know, to try to listen and try to understand what people are trying to accomplish and see if that intersects with something that we're trying to pursue as a strategy. So could you tell us about one of your biggest failures and what have you done to kind of overcome that failure? It could be like an historical failure that taught you something very important about this business. Sure. Once again, back to relationships. So going into the, call it the moment in time when Lehman failed was a bad moment in time. And we owned two hotels at that time. We have had gotten out of a, a third hotel previous to that, fortunately, And both of those hotels were significantly impacted by a severe reduction in business travel. One of them was in Silicon Valley, and one of them was in Scottsdale, Arizona. Fortunately, it was more of a leisure hotel, and so was able to make it through. But in both instances, we had to work either through restructuring. In one case, I had to buy a loan that went to the market in order to protect our investors. 
And in the other instance, we had an institutional partner and we had to negotiate a basically conveyance of the property back to a lender. And so, and it took many months. You know, hotels are complicated. I, I know. You know, management companies and franchise agreements and all of these moving parts. But at the end of the day, all of those people still do business with us on the equity side. So what I learned, I probably had learned going into that, but I had some good mentors involved, in particular at AEW, capital management, that really helped me steer down, call it the good character path. You know, because at the end of the day, that's when times are bad, what comes around and rewards you in the long run is how you behave then. Yeah, that's, I've been reading a book by Chris Voss called Never Split the Difference. One of the things that he always mentions is how to preserve relationships when you think they've completely failed. I would really like to kind of deep dive into preserving capital when something didn't go right. What are some of the measures that you took and some of the advice that you got to kind of make that shift and make people continue to trust you? So I mentioned the character thing, and there was a very specific remark made by the lead team member from our capital partner. And when I heard him say it, I recognized how important that is. I knew it was going to be bad. He knew more than I did how bad it was going to be. And so he was getting me ready to some extent. One, you have to be prepared to take a punch. If you can't get up after taking a punch, you shouldn't be in this business. And they happen. They just do. They happen in good times. Leases fall apart, deals fall apart, and it feels like you've been gut punched. And you just have to get up the next day and start again. So persistence is just extremely important. And as you said, and you, you know, understanding how people might be impacted and getting out in front of it and talking them through, you know, how this is going to go and being super honest with it. I have a friend who says, bad news takes the elevator, good news takes the stairs. It's so true. And then, you know, this idea that you protect every last dollar. I mean, it's just like, and I don't care. I mean, if we're going to lose money, then it's going to be as little as we possibly can for them, right? For us, because we're a GP, you know, we're out of the money, right? So our money is, you know, diluted and there's no promote and we're working for free at that level. And so those are the times when your relationships can get deeper. It doesn't always happen that way, but we've been fortunate to have really great partners. More of the positive sides, what is the thing that you're most proud of that you were able to achieve in your career? Well, we survived the GFC and kept the lights on. <laughs> you know, uh, it took, for me personally, it probably took six or seven years or so to get back to even. You know, in terms of where we sat, maybe in, 19, in 2007, you know, we had a broad spectrum of stuff that we were investing in. We were super careful with leverage. But for me personally, it had a pretty big impact. We didn't let anybody go. You know, we decided that it was an opportunity. The GFC was an opportunity. So we doubled down. We brought some people in from out of state and other markets that were struggling that are still with us. And, you know, I've got young people on our team now that have been with us, you know, 12 going on 15 years, you know, back to like 2008, nine, when we knew things were going to be bad that have been involved in this, you know, climb out 
and a lot of successes. So I'm really proud that as a company, we didn't give up. We stayed in. In fact, we doubled down. It's incredible because I know that a lot of these companies in 2008, 2009 just lost their business completely. A lot of them decided to leave the business and go to different industries. There were a lot of problems. And I think that the way that you're able to push through is a great indicator to show it can be done. What kind of drives you or excites you around this industry? What are the things that get you thrilled and I'm ready to go, right? What are those things for you? People, you know, and it's a very fun place to work. I'm talking about just the broad world of real estate. We do a lot of different things because I like interacting with different people. And I think our team finds that to be natural because it's, you know, it's part of our culture. Mm -hmm. Part of this is the training I had prior to forming my own firm, formed my own firm in 02. You know, and going on my own, you know, I felt like what I could bring to a team of mostly younger people than I am is the idea that we could be flexible in the way that we think. So that if it's not the right time to be out buying hotels, we'd be doing something else, apartments or whatever it is. And so we've continued to try to keep it dynamic as opposed to saying, okay, we're just going to focus on this silo and we're going to be a specialist in that. I consider us a specialist in being good investors. That's amazing. Being, I've heard of a lot of GPs that are vertically focused on something very specific. Mm -hmm. I've yet to see a lot of generalists. Right. So I think that this is really a different way of thinking, and it's very, very special from what I'm seeing, at least. So if you can reflect back to your first days in the industry, do you have that one story you just can't forget, that coin drop moment or the, the epiphany moment? Something happened in the beginning of your career. Do you remember one of those moments? <laughs> There's, I, uh... There's so many. Well, so my sort of infancy was as someone who didn't know what they wanted to do with their life. Okay. So when I graduated from school, I thought I was going to go to law school. And then somebody that I knew said, while you're waiting, why don't you come and work for us in Minneapolis? And they had a large apartment investment and management business. And so I showed up. I didn't even really own a suit. I grew up in a small town. <laughs> My dad's a veterinarian, you know. And so I showed up for the first day of work, and they had me on an apartment project. And I went to work for a woman who was just a grinder. I mean, she scared the heck out of me. <laughs> and I remember coming home from work the first day thinking, I like this. <laughs> she scared me so much. I like this. I like it because I could move things forward in a very concrete way, could create value on an incremental basis, just from everywhere, from in the office out into the actual physical property. And so at that time, I started thinking about changing and going to the real estate program. So just shortly after that, yeah. which is, you know, it changed my life. And at some point I may have stumbled into it, but... I wouldn't have stumbled into it the same way if I was trained to be a lawyer. Yeah, that's definitely <laughs> it. I learned something new on every deal we do. And it's just inevitable. You know, every deal is different. That's the other really exciting thing about real estate. All these assets come with nuances, challenges and opportunities. And, you know, being able to, and I heard somebody this morning talk about in, you know, how to figure out what not to do 
as quickly as possible is the most valuable thing. This is something that is a characteristic for many of the entrepreneurs I talked with in real estate, not in yep. real estate. See things through, look at the small nuances, don't miss the small, like the fine letters, the small details. Here's the hard part. The hard part is showing up across the table from somebody that you're a counterparty with and it's going to be bad in being a gentleman. It's the hard part. And so I see it so often, people get angry and then it gets worse, right? And it leads to, you know, all kinds of problems aside from being able to actually define what the best possible outcome is. And that is protecting your investors' interests. You know, if you can sit down and figure out something that works. Who are the people or the person that kind of influenced you the most and helped you build the person that I'm talking to today? Several. Actually, my aunt, who's an interior designer in Minneapolis, is the one who said, come and work for this company that I work with. And she taught me that it was okay to make money. And I, when I came out of college, I wasn't sure that, you know, that it was, that okay? that it was okay. That was a pretty big first lesson. <laughs> That's the first lesson. That's a big influence. I like it. I like it. Yeah. It's, it's okay to make money. And then I worked for a brilliant gentleman for 10 years and they gave me a huge opportunity, but the opportunity was to learn from how they think. Some people who are great are just really difficult, right? And so my challenge was being able to be there and be part of that. And what I got in exchange was priceless. Do you think that without their influence, you think you would end up in the same industry anyway? Yeah. First of all, I already loved it. I learned there how to do a lot of different things because we were a really small shop doing big things. And so I was given a blank check in terms of the kinds of things I could work on, not in terms of money, but, you know, the effort. And so I put a lot into it. And so I learned a lot about what I could do and my limitations. And I learned a lot about how I did not want to run a group because as good as they were, there are things that I wanted to do differently. And the most important piece, I've been on my own for 20 years now, and I think the most important piece is when you do that, it's your voice. But everything prior to that, you're speaking for the company. You are an emissary for them, and you have to be careful that you keep that in mind. Now, you know, I define, I define what our culture is together with my team and what the ethical sort of foundation of how we speak to people. Yeah, that's the basics of personal relationships and networking. And sometimes it's really hard for people to understand how that works. But, you know, a company culture and the people you surround yourself with and the way that you give them that voice, I think, mm -hmm. creates only positive results at the end. Right? I'm sure that some of them come in, you know, every once in a while and say, Joe's crazy. Yeah, that's right. <laughs> that's okay, though. Yeah. That's okay that you're going to push them into doing something of their own. Yeah. And I think that's continuing that cycle. And that's beautiful. Continue to give to other people. Yep. Okay, cool. So let's go a little bit into growth hacks. What have you done to push your firm for growth? And I think we can focus specifically on that switch between 2008, 2009, right. and then you said all of a sudden there was growth there. Like, yeah. What are the specific things you've done to make that happen? 
Well, a couple things. The first one is to be really focused on capital relationships, even when it seems like there isn't anything to do. You know, when things are really bad, you should think about what capital matches up with what the distressed opportunities are going to be. You have to think about finding those relationships where people can have an alignment of vision with you. You know, the whole industry focuses on this buzz phrase, alignment of interests, right? You hear it all the time. Capital partners sit down with you and they want an alignment of interest and they, stru- of they structure it. This is how we get to an alignment of interest. We're going to create these boxes for you, right? But if you don't have an alignment of vision, you can't grow. You need partners that are with you. And I've failed at that. I've had several trips down the path where I've negotiated programmatic, you know, operating, you know, or strategies where they didn't show up because we would say, hey, listen, we have to act on this. And they would say, I don't know. I don't know. I love that. (laughs) I don't know. Great partnerships, right? Yeah. And then we've had other partnerships, once again, having learned the hard way, where if we say we're going to the mat on this, we have to win it, they show up with us. They're shoulder to shoulder with us, and they're willing to take risks right with us. Yeah, I think the power of partnerships is something that has crossed through every conversation I had. What happens when we need to work shoulder to shoulder right now and take a risk or go all in? Right. Would that person next to me do that with me? Right. Yeah. So in general, what are some tools that you're using today to kind of streamline the things that you do. And like you said in the beginning, like working on those capital relationships, how do I maintain them? How do I deepen them? Right. So what are some tools that you can suggest to people listening to us? Well, we're not very tech savvy. So we are now using an internal accounting and investor reporting dashboard for our high net worths, which we've just really onboarded in the last 12 months. But in the early days, you know, we built up our accounting group. They're very strong. So we've always had the capability to account for our institutional investors, right? Who are, I think, the most rigorous at looking over our shoulders. And then so we would bring in these technology platforms and my accounting group would go, no, because what they're asking for is a replication of work. We have to duplicate everything we're doing and we have to hard code it in, you know, to their system when we're already running Yardi and QuickBooks and all the other Mm -hmm. systems that we have. So just recently, you know, we have found that those groups have caught up and integrated to the point where we can export our work into it and Mm -hmm. it marries pretty seamlessly. Mm -hmm. But interestingly, we probably have... 40 high net worth families that invest with us. And I would say the take up on it in terms of really using it is less than 50%. Wow. And because these tend to be, they're wealthy families. It's not the kids yet that are sort of managing their interests. First of all, they're probably relationships of mine from years and years. And so some of them just are like, they're just, I'm not really interested. It's more of a trust thing. I think they really, really trust you for all the years you've been doing business together. Yeah. 
but we're getting there. And one of the reasons I'm here is to hear, you know, from folks on the prop tech side mm-hmm. and some of the ways that, you know, they're integrating their systems into actual capital raises. Mm-hmm. You know, to me, that seems to be where the industry is going. We see a lot of syndicators out there who are like, you hit their website and it says, basically, there's a button that says, invest here or are you interested in investing and to me that's always been a step away from you know the type of fiduciary responsibility being an investment manager represents yeah. and so it's going to take me a little while to get my head around that yeah i think that gen y and gen z who are now kind of growing into this are able to now invest as well there's a middle ground there and yeah. they are looking for that kind of access okay so we have a couple more questions so You talked a lot about networking and what are some of the things that you've done to build out that network of yours? Sure. So I sort of believe in networking up and networking down and being involved in the community in a serious way. So those are sort of those, if you've got your first and foremost, your family, right? I don't take money from any family member ever, ever. (laughs) That's a dangerous, dangerous concept. I've seen that create problems. (laughs) And then, you know, my internal organization. And so we try to support the charitable work that our team is involved in. And then on the community side, always have had several things going on, you know, that I think are important. And today I'm spending a lot of time on homelessness with Arizona Housing Fund that's run by a very good friend of mine. You know, it's something you're you're welcome to drop the name if you want to. So people could like, is it donation based? How does that work? It is. But it's an interesting concept because what we're trying to do is penetrate the real estate industry with small bites. Mm -hmm. So think about this. So Meritage Homes, publicly traded company Mm -hmm. based in Scottsdale, sort of took a lead role in this. And so when you show up and you buy a Meritage Home, you're the home consumer. And that form, it has to check the box. You want to donate twenty five, fifty, or hundred bucks to Arizona Housing Fund, and the builder will match it. It's sort of like when you check out at PetSmart, yeah, right. You can hit the button to help shelter, right? Mm-hmm. So that's the concept because I feel like our industry has a responsibility to contribute mm-hmm. to the solutions, mm-hmm. and the solutions are broad. I mean, they can be raising funds and all of that. But at the end of the day, it's about housing supply. Yes. And if you can't catalyze it, it's going to be very difficult for it to get anything but worse. Yeah. And I think this is one of the most important jobs of GPs all around. Mm -hmm. I feel like this industry's obligation, other GPs, other sponsors, other syndicators, to make sure that there's enough housing, affordable housing, and for people that can't afford it, but I want to live Good life. It's you know. complicated. And you're right, and yet we're displacing people right now. And even if rents going up fifteen to twenty percent mm-hmm. in most growth markets, it's going to be difficult. Yeah. And these challenges are just emerging and probably mm-hmm. being exacerbated. But then the other really important pedestal on this stool is the industry organizations. Mm-hmm. So heavily involved in Urban Land Institute. I've been going to, been on a national product council for decades, various ones. And when I show up there, I'm seeing the leaders in the industry. I'm in the same room with 50 other people and they're smarter than I am, right? That's what do they always say. 
if you're the smartest person in the room, you're in the wrong you're room. Doing, yeah, you're in the wrong room, definitely. <laughs> and so that's a room I want to be in and I've always aspired to be in. And then in Arizona, we run a mentorship program for 35 and under real estate professionals. So we get kids in their, in the 23 to 24 year old range, all the way up to mid thirties. So you have this broad spectrum, you know, where there's a lot of mentoring that takes place in these groups. And so we have 160 young people in Arizona right now engaged in this program. I recruit the mentors and help organize the old people's contributions to it. The young folks actually are responsible for making the program work, but it's just, I've been doing it for 15, 16 years now. And so that sort of broader network is what I call being in the flow. And when I just think that when somebody has a deal, I want them to think of me. And so it doesn't matter whether I'm out saying I'm looking for deals. But if I'm doing that and I'm doing speaking engagements or whatever, it's helpful. And I do hope that this podcast will also help bring more deals onto your table, even if you're not asking for them. I am counting on you. Okay. Okay. (laughs) I got you covered. I'll try to get you a couple of deals from this. Okay. Any trade secrets you're willing to reveal to our audience? Anything specific that you know that has made a significant change to the way you do your business? Work harder. Work harder. (laughs) That's so simple, but true. You know, success is an opportunity to do more work. I think that's what you have to start with. Wow. If you could go back in time and meet your younger self, what is the one tip you would give yourself? Wake up. Wake up. (laughs) It depends on how young. Well, let's go for like right after college. You know, it's interesting. I have a 26-year-old daughter who's doing very well. She works for a technology company in San Francisco. And we talk about this place she is in her life right now. And what I hear from her is kind of a sort of a lower self-image than she should have based upon what she's actually accomplishing. Because she's looking around the room and she's seeing people and she's like, I'll never get there. And so what I would probably, the advice that I give her and that I would probably have given myself is get more potential than you think. Wow. That's huge. Sentence number four. What are you going to do with you today, Joe? Okay, Joe, anything else you would like to add to our audience? You can drop in your email, or website, phone number, whatever you want, so they'll know how to reach out to you. Does that work? Sure. So my company is called Everest Holdings. We're a real estate investment company. My website is easy to find, everestholdings.com. And all my contact information is on the website. And if people want to come to town, have coffee, come in and talk. I'm always interested. All that information is going to be in the podcast description. Joe, it was so lovely to have this conversation with you. I feel like I've learned so much and our audience would learn so much from this as well. And yeah, reach out to Joe if you have a new deal. We needed a couple of deals at least. Okay. Thank you. Thank you so much. Nice to meet you.